Good morning. Love is a word that we throw around a good bit in the world today. In many ways, the meaning of the term love is constantly changing in society. It's watered down now. It's, we mean it as a term of emotion and not as a term of passion. Sort of how we use the word hate today. Hate describes anything which we might be uneasy with or have reservations about. Now, the Greeks had the same issue in their language centuries ago, and so they developed three separate words for love. And you probably heard this before. Priests love to talk about this. I'm not going to go into all the different words for love. But the word our Lord uses this morning is agapases, which is the imperative form of the word agape, to love with the highest form of charity, to love to the point of death. Now, the Lord Christ uses this word twice in the gospel we heard this morning, both in the greatest commandment and in the second commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor. The same word is used in Greek. And it's important that we notice this connection because it gives us insight into how we're going to interpret these two commandments. So the first thing to notice is that these two separate lines are taken from different places in the Old Testament. We hear the first commandment in Deuteronomy. Moses gives this commandment to the chosen people as they prepare to enter the promised land. And it's a commandment which becomes central to the Jewish practice. People have compared the Shema Israel, the hero Israel, as the Lord's Prayer, so to say, of the Jews. It's that common to them. They know it by heart. And then that second line is taken from Leviticus, where Moses records in the law that men are not to hold grudges, but instead they are to love each other as they love themselves. So Christ the Lord will take these two lines and joins them together. And I think that's important for us to recognize that the scribe in the gospel didn't ask for the two greatest commandments, right? He asked for the greatest commandment, but our Lord gave him two. So there's an intentionality in what Christ is trying to do here. So he uses that same term of love to express one incredible reality, that the love which we are to show toward God must also be shown to one another. Not because our neighbor is equal to God, not even because that is how God loves our neighbor, but because there is only one undifferentiated form of love in God. The love we have for one another flows out of our love for God because he's the only source of love. God is love, says the Lord. One of my favorite writers is the early 20th century uh, English priest, Father Ronald Knox. And he has a passage where he says, human love, human beauty, they're only shadows, not the substance. They could not move our nature so deeply if they had not in them something of the divine. And yet they are so imperfect, so fugitive, so unsatisfying that they can only be shadows. The expressions of our love of God and the way that we love our neighbor will have different forms, even though they're meant to be an expression of the same love. So we express our love of God through adoration, through reverence, through the fitting worship which the church renders to God in the Holy Mass. 
but we express our love of neighbor by mimicking God's love toward us. And God's love has immense qualities. It's always forgiving. It's constant, passionate, generous, irrevocable. It's so beyond our comprehension because it's different in every way from the way the world loves. You see, the world sees crimes against love and says they're unforgivable, right? We think that a lover would never do anything to hurt their beloved, and thus it couldn't really be love. The world demands reciprocity, not generosity. The lover should only be expected to give if the love is returned in the eyes of the world. So the world will see trouble and suffering and therefore demand that love must have some reasonable limits where it can be withdrawn. And this is why the world can't understand, for example, why the church would desire to protect the dignity of murderers and the imprisoned, right? Fighting to end the death penalty. Because the world sees the crimes of others and says that makes them unlovable. And therefore we should deny them mercy. But that's not the love of God, is it? God's love seems unreasonable to us. It knows no bounds. It never ceases to express itself. And yet it's God's love that sustains the breath of all of us. Even the murderer, the imprisoned, etc., right? If there's any evidence of the contrary nature of worldly love, it's marriage. In the eyes of the world, marital love is also safely limited. And that's a really odd thing to say. If you think about a few weeks ago, I talked about the marriage vows The words a couple say to one another are supernatural. They don't sound like the reality of marriage that's given to us by the world. I take you to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. So there's no limiting terms there. If couples really reflected on these vows before they got married, I think it should make them afraid. From this day forward... Until death do us part, irrevocable, indissoluble, from the moment I say these words until the day I die. Irrevocable love. That's not worldly love. That's supernatural, divine love. Think about that phrase, for better or for worse. How many things in our life do we accept for better or for worse? Right? We go to a steakhouse. We get an $80 steak. And if it comes out burnt, we're going to tell ourselves, for better or for worse. Right? You go on vacation, show up to the hotel, they don't have your reservation, for better or for worse, right? No, we don't think like that. That sort of thinking isn't the way the world looks at things, right? That sort of thinking places a supernatural demand on life, a demand that requires grace to lift us up in order to love like God. Right? I'm not saying that. You shouldn't turn back your... I probably would turn back my $80 steak if it was burnt. I'm not saying that, but there's a point with this, right? There is no limit to God's love, right? And the world thinks that's foolish. They think it's crazy for someone to love without limits, but that is how God loves all of us. It's the love of a God who knew that Judas would betray him and yet chose him as a close friend, who made himself vulnerable enough that he could be betrayed by him. It's the love of a God who, knowing Peter, denied him not once but three times, still granted him the dignity of being the greatest apostle and gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is not how 
humans love, at least not naturally. And that's why we have sacraments, like the sacrament of marriage, for example. Men and women are capable, on their own, of passionately loving one another, but with the assistance of a sacrament, their love can be transformed, made supernatural. And that's a grace we have to beg from God. I was at a wedding on Friday, and the priest made the comment that he wishes more couples, when they face troubles, would bring them to the altar where they made the sacrament and beg for the grace. G.K. Chesterton, another English writer, says that love is not blind. That's the last thing it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. For our love to be bound means that it's committed to the other, both committed to God and committed in a very real way to our neighbor. So if we keep with the example of marriage, this means there's a commitment to not let that love be sacrificed for any reason. Now, there can be fear, right? Fear of the unknown when someone gets married or when they're considering getting married. There's fear in considering going to seminary. There's fear in things as simple as going to get a new job. What can I expect to face? What lies ahead of me? Will I be able to handle it if I make this decision? Young people have that phrase now, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. That's what it is. I was talking to a young man who was considering seminary, and he said he's wrestling with this idea of, you know, what if I become a priest and then 20 years down the road I meet a woman and I hate that I didn't marry her? And I said, you know, when a man goes to propose to a woman, he doesn't think to himself, I'm saying no to every other woman on this planet. Doesn't think that way. He thinks about the person who's in front of him because his love is bound. It's committed to something. And I think that's an issue with my generation is we're, we're not committed to anything. So think about this, this fear that people have in making decisions and then add in love. Love isn't blind. Love looks at the unknown in the face and stays committed. The choice is made not because of the unknown, but because of the commitment to love this person. If we are to truly love one another with the same love of God, then that means that all of those explanatory phrases that Christ gives in the gospel have to be taken into account. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now flip it. It's the same love towards the other. That's what Christ is telling us. Toward a spouse, toward a sibling, toward our children, toward our neighbors. Two nights ago, Father Augustine was complaining because there was a house party in our neighborhood. With all your heart with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Nothing can stop that. No matter what trouble you may face, no matter how many falls you have, nothing can quench that love because it's supernatural. That's why marriage is such an exalted vocation in the church, a vocation so precious that the church is acting to protect it. Marriage is so important to the church that she knows if any aspect of it were to be sacrificed, it would be worthless. Christian marriage is valuable because it is the love of God. That's what the church teaches us. It's the most perfect expression for God's love on earth. And that love is made incarnate, not in flowers and butterflies and happy feelings and emotions like we think of love today. It was made incarnate in blood and nails. Marriage is an adventure, says Chesterton. An adventure like going to war. Or again, he says, I've known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight 
through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. We have to beg God to love like this. Beg him to love as he loves, the way he loves us, not in shadows but in substance. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever.